This is your Value Through Vulnerability host, Gary Turner. Had the absolute pleasure of welcoming Hung Lee from WorkShape onto the podcast today. I'm not going to give this too much of an introduction as there's just so much um, depth, so much wisdom, so much insight that Hung shares from his uh, background in anthropology and his passion for technology and people and recruitment all shines through. It's a really interesting mix. But yeah, it just really blew me away with some of the, uh, the reflection, particularly around how communities formed. Um, but rather than me carry on, I'm just let you let you uh, listeners dive in. Do 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 let us know what you think. Let Hung and or myself know what you think about the podcast. I think there's so much to take away here. Uh, also, just need to apologise to Hung that I introduced these organisations, Workspace and not Work Shape. But as with all podcasts, we don't do any editing at all. They are raw adult adult conversational pieces. So uh, therefore, we capture mistakes as well. So thanks very much, Hung. And uh, we do hope that all of the listeners enjoy this podcast. Thanks. Welcome to Value Through Vulnerability, a podcast dedicated to putting the human back into humanity. And this morning, I'm really grateful to welcome Hung Lee, who has two titles today, which is curator of Recruiting Brain Feed and also founder of WorkShape. So good morning, Hung. Morning, Gary. How are you doing? I am very well, sir. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Awesome. Well, look, as we get going, for those that don't know you, um, in terms of my listeners, would you mind just giving a, a brief introduction to who you are, you know, what you do for work, and what are you passionate about, Hung? Yeah, I mean, firstly, I guess I'm, 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 I'm still a recruiter. So I've, I've always been a person that's gone into recruitment in some way. Um, now going back, you know, 15, 16 years or more. But um, but yeah, started off as an agency recruiter, then went consultancy, then went in-house, then launched a recruiting tech product, uh, that's WorkShape. Um, and now I've kind of launching a media business with recruiting brain food now. So, uh, which is a, 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 a newsletter focused on the talent community. So, so yeah, I've always been in and around the talent space, um, now doing various things, uh, you know, wearing different hats and sitting in different seats. That's amazing. And how does that um, recruiting brain uh, food come about for you? Did somebody ask, did somebody ask you for it or is it something you just thought, actually, this could be helpful? You know what? For me, I had a personal problem. Um, I have a lot of personal problems. Um, but one, <laughs> one personal problem I had was that I, I just could not um, deal with all of the noise of the internet. Um, even though, so I encountered a lot of good uh, content, great thought pieces, and so on. But I found I couldn't consume them or, or consistently, you know, identify them because the internet it simply got too noisy, too big. Um, so recruiting brain food is really my attempt to make the internet smaller. Um, uh, it's, it's me thinking, you know what, probably other people in the recruitment industry also have the same experience with massively distracted. There's no way we can actually find all the best stuff. What if I just collected it all together in a week and send their weekly email to people? Might they be interested in, in, in sharing what I'm reading right now? So that's basically what recruiting brain food is. It's a curated newsletter, 10, 15 articles per week. Um, and it goes out to uh, people in the recruitment and HR uh, worlds. Um, and it's, you know, what I think are the interesting things that you've got to think about this week. Yeah, no, lovely. Well, look, I'm a, I'm a subscriber to that. So again, thank you publicly for the work you do, Hung, because absolutely, the internet is too noisy, without a doubt. It's a great tool, but it's also a barrier at times. Huh? 
It is, and it's an overwhelming one, and we're responsible for it. You know, I'm not one of these that rails against big tech or whatever. The noise is created by us. Um, you know, we're the ones tweeting, to posting, you know, doing all this type of stuff, um, and and it is hugely distracting. And you know, um, what we've got to do is to try and find some quiet spaces to do that. Um, uh, uh, which again, why you know, the reason why you know uh, the new, uh, brain food comes out at a, at a regular cadence on a Sunday morning. Um, it's because that, that was my quiet time. You know, I know on Sunday morning, generally speaking, I'm not going to be disturbed by anybody else. And that's when I could do a little bit of reading. Um, so it's like identifying the, the, the gaps in, in the, uh, the week that people have and then thinking, right, this is the right time for people to do a little bit more of the deep thinking that perhaps we do. We don't do enough of, uh, in this kind of distracted world that we're in right now. Mm, really interesting. Um, just to take you back to a little bit of your education, if you may, because I'm really interested. You mentioned you're sort of a career recruiter, now own tech product, own curation. Where did all that start from? Because I'm really interested. When I've looked at your background, you had this sort of master's in anthropology. So the people's always been in your, your DNA. Yeah, I mean, I didn't realize it at the time. So when I was studying, um, so I was a bit of like a, a, a teenage hippie, really. Um, and, and I kind of, you know, went into the world of academia with a very strong conviction of never getting a job. Uh, you know, it's like, no, I want to check out of the, the market economy and go and live in the jungle somewhere. So that was, that was a genuine idea. Um, and I just said, right, uh, I'm really interested in how uh, organizations operate. Um, you know, what is the operating system of an organization? Why do certain groups of people behave in this way compared to others? Um, and I was drawn to anthropology for that reason. Um, uh, now, after four years of studying various tribes in Papua New Guinea and, and, and South America and so on, um, I became kind of really more interested, less interested in the, in the exotica um, and more interested in the anthropology that was happening in big cities, urban anthropology. Because it, it became clear to me that actually a lot of the, uh, the things that we go out to study out there are actually processes that occur in here, in the world we're in. Um, and anthropology is really fantastic um, for me to just take that skill set and apply it to you know the modern world, the city world that uh, that I'm part of. So, so yeah, that's basically you know maybe there's there's a there's a dotted line somewhere from there to the world of, of recruiting because you know it is about finding the right organization, the right fit. Why do certain businesses or groups of people within those businesses behave in this way? You know that that that's an enduring fascination for me. I think. Oh, interesting. So what were those particular aspects of your studies that have transferred or you've looked at those sort of tribes in Papua New Guinea and gone, mm. actually, it's happening in the cities. Now, what particular threads have you, have you seen come over for you particularly? Yeah, sure. So one of the main things is how do you create community? Um, you know, how, how, how are community bonds actually made and, and maintained? Um, and, and this actually applies directly, I think, to uh, in-company culture. Like uh, I think culture has become, um, you know, a, a really a mainstream term over the last 18 months or so, um, where companies are really thinking about values, thinking about their behaviors and so on. How do you build a culture? How do you grow it? Um, and also, how do you create sort of a brand agnostic cultures? So, so cultures that kind of go across companies uh, and these kind of mini social movements that, that, that are there, um, and which in fact I apply, I understand brain food to be part of that. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a, a agnostic uh, culture of people that consume this, uh, this content. So, you know, it's, 
I, I don't want to come out and say, oh, here's how you create culture. Um, but there are certain principles and certain rules that seem to be universal. Um, and some of them might not be too happy listening for us, you know. Um, uh, they're kind of uh, tough to, to, to kind of think about sometimes and tough to, 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 to articulate. But one of the things that anthropology does give you is the uh, moral obligation to articulate these things. Um, because the things that are unsaid and then kind of um, incubate in the wrong way and they can express themselves in a way that perhaps is not intelligent or not nuanced enough. So quick example before we lose the listeners into, into, into abstraction um, is, okay, how do, you, how do you create community? Number one, sadly enough, community is actually made at the boundary. Like you need to actually exclude people in order for community to exist. Now that's a very tough thing to think about. Um, and instinctively, you know, with my moral values, my moral code and so on, um, I, I immediately think, wow, that's, that's actually quite bad, isn't it? Um, but when you think about how cultures actually evolve, they're really there to, as a defense mechanism. Um, they're there to basically get a, a group of people together in usually a hostile environment, uh, usually an environment where there's threats um, from the environment directly and also from other groups and other communities and so on. And the way in which you kind of create this community and keep it strong is to say, here are our rules. This is what we do. Um, uh, this is how we survive. And all of the members of that community need to demonstrate these rules and demonstrate these values. Otherwise, are you really with us? Um, now you can see, these expressed in really negative ways um, whenever you get to the, to, to the political level, at national level. You know, for instance, when you saw, let's say, 9-11, one of the classic examples uh, of that terrible incident was when George Bush came out and he, he very quickly said, look, are you with us? Are you against us? Um, and, and, and that was an attempt really to eliminate any kind of nuance, um, but to draw a very clear line to say who is out and who is in. Um, and that is a community creating technique. Now you can do that for good or ill, but that is how you create community. That's, that's, that's really fascinating. So one of the, one of the aspects of this podcast, before we get back to, I want to explore your business a bit more as well, Hun. but part of the, the, the sort of background, of this podcast is actually around inclusion, actually. So there's a big push on inclusion, on diversity, and I think it's well-meaning, but I'm sort mm -hmm. of interested to talk and I guess, it's, it's interesting. So, so what's your take on inclusion diversity as a theme of work right now, based on what you've just described? Yeah, I I'm, I'm personally think these things are not necessarily in conflict um, because the truth is the world is messy. Um, and one of the things that, is, that I've certainly learned, whether it's from uh, anthropology or elsewhere, is that absolutism is the, is the enemy. Um, you know, anybody who gets an idea and then absolutely must say, it, you know, there's no conditions around that. There's no exceptions to this rule. They're the people that actually become fanatics because um, they can't deal with the messy world. They can't deal with the reality um, uh, that, that isn't uh, perfect. So I would say um, uh, inclusion is a hugely important uh, uh, idea. I'm very pleased that it's now become the, the dominant partner of the diversity and inclusion sort of duo. Um, so I think it's very important we kind of create um, uh, environments where people genuinely feel included as default um, rather than, you know, potentially excluded as default. Um, but if we think about 
the inclusivity, um, it isn't complete or comprehensive. Um, there are people that we decide to exclude. Um, for instance, um, let's say I don't want to include Nazis into my company. If you want to dive into inclusivity, um, I, there's a paradox of tolerance, right? So ultimately, I need to make a rule somewhere. I need to draw the line somewhere. And I do draw that line. Um, and, and therefore, that community, the inclusive culture, is still built on the boundary. Like who comes in and who doesn't? You know what? No Nazis in my company. Sorry. Um, and also, if you're a terrorist sympathizer, also, no, 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 no truck in my business or anything I do. Kind of excluding them, really. Um, but you know what? I'm confident that's the right thing to do. So inclusivity is not absolute. Um, it is a, a set of values where you want to say, look, here's where, where I think uh, we, we want to be as a, as a business. Um, and these could be any types of um, uh, values that you might see uh, 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 that you, that you want to believe in. And then you kind of create a culture where as many people that you want to adhere to those values feel welcome in that. I think the, the error that a lot of companies have is there's been a, a kind of a gap between the rhetoric and the reality of it. Um, you know, most companies had previously thought, of course, we're inclusive because, you know, what, we're not judging people in terms of their gender. We're not judging people in terms of their race. Uh, we don't care about their religious uh, beliefs and so on. But they're not inclusive because they'll do things um, or there'll be rituals within their business that actually kind of don't include those people. Great example would be, oh, let's go on a golf weekend, Gary. Right? Yeah. Who the hell plays golf? <laughs> Basically, middle-class white men. Right? So it's an example of where there's a gap between rhetoric and reality, where if you do a corporate event or something of that type, um, are you thinking about all of the population in your business? Uh, or are you are just thinking about people who look and, and seem like you? And that's a great example of a... Of a of an unconsciously non-inclusive culture. Um, so yeah, I think I value inclusivity because we do need to close the gap between rhetoric and reality. Um, but at an even deeper level, um, there is a tension between absolute inclusivity and you know the, the, how the real world works. That's, that's wonderful. That's so, so succinct. Now I can see where you get the time to do recruiting brain food and do your day job. Very, well. very, very succinct. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's really interesting, actually. I want to pick up on that sort of behavior piece, actually. So you gave a fantastic talk last week, uh, sorry, last year at one of the recruitment um, expos. And you spoke when you was introducing your product, um, Workshape, and we'll talk a bit more about that, Hung. But you, yeah. you mentioned that tools change the way we behave. Yes. And I find that really, really interesting. Do you mind expanding on that a little bit for the listeners? Yeah, so I think it was the, the talk like... Um, Let's, uh, let's talk about the tool makers um, in, yeah. in the sense that basically um, there's a dynamic between the tooling we use and, and, and how our minds work. Um, you know, uh, the, the, it, the, when we invented writing, for instance, as a very early technology, um, uh, that reprogrammed how our brains operated because suddenly you had a way uh, to record stuff that you previously had to remember in your mind. Uh, but actually you could outsource it into a tablet or a papyrus or something like that. Um, and, and, and it, it altered the ways in which we think. And even to this day, when you, you know, people do MRI scans of people who are writing compared to when they're talking, they're acti activating different parts of their brain. Um, so 
from what we know about neuroscience and how the brain works and how networks and synapses fire, uh, the more you use one part, basically uh, creates um, greater density in that area of the brain and actually it does alter a lot of the skills that you, pr you previously have or, 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 or sort of alter, alter uh, some of the behaviors perhaps uh, you, you weren't aware of. So when we're looking at things of, of the modern world, for instance, mobile phones, um, notifications popping into your inbox, um, you know, all the social media stuff, the likes that I get on Instagram, all these types of things. Uh, of course, these things are influencing me and in, in influencing my brain um, in ways in which I probably didn't design or engineer, but no question that it's doing that. Um, and in fact, if it didn't do it, then why am I doing any of these things, right? <laughs> Um, so, so, so yeah, there is this dynamic between the tech and the man, uh, or to use more inclusive language, uh, the, the person, um, and, and, and yeah, it's underexplored, I think, you know, um, my own view is, is that, you know, we kind of should embrace it. I know there's a lot of people that, um, are, are, are intolerant of technology or of kind of disturbed by where technology has, uh, uh, uh taken us, um, at this point. Um, but I do think that these are also people that have, remove their own agency from this. Um, you know, we are the ones that are using the tools and we together with technology have got us here. Technology didn't deliver us to this point. Um, you know, Facebook did not deliver Brexit. Um, uh, Twitter did not deliver Trump. Uh, you know, they probably amplified those effects, but you know what? We went out and voted for that. Um, so at the end of the day, I, my, my kind of position is we need to obviously be more careful about the massively significant effects that technology has. Let's be conscious of how it does affect uh, us as individuals and the wider society. But let's take that back. You know, let's take that control back in, you know, to use the language of, 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 uh, of some of the more unpleasant folks out there. You know, let's take some of the, the, the control back. But let's own the fact that we made these decisions. We are agents in this uh, as much as we are victims. Uh, and we can also be uh, those things simultaneously, which I think we are right now. It's really interesting, actually, hearing that, how you mentioned consciousness. So I think there's, I think for me, so and I see with this amplification on, on technology hung, that it almost releases one of their responsibility and accountability. It's just easy yeah. to be that troll or to hide behind, you know, the rhetoric at the moment, for example, for Matt Haig, who's an author, and he's been coming out talking about challenging sort of um, toxic masculinity. And the, the number of trolls hung, honestly, none of them have got a face. None of them have yeah. got a, a message yeah. behind them. And it's, so it's really interesting. There seems to be this lack of accountability behind social sometimes. It's, it's completely lacking in accountability. And also it's, it's prey because of this lack of uh, accountability. It's prey also to... Um, uh, uh, really quite sophisticated uh, uh, fakery. Um, you know, a lot of these accounts are actually connected to each other. Um, uh, uh, a professional troll will not troll with his own account. Um, he or she, and sadly enough, it usually is a he, um, is, which again is a fascinating phenomenon. Um, you know, why is it gendered um, uh, when you think about sort of trolling? Um, and these, these people usually have multiple fake accounts. Now, it is very difficult, um, the, but, but you then extrapolate further, like how do you remove trolling? And right now, you, we're putting the responsibility on uh, the platform to do that. Like how do you, and then suddenly they're infringing on free speech, right? Um, because how can, what is, who determines what is acceptable to say? Um, and, and the way I see it is, 
you know, the only other alternative to do this is to connect the identity of the person absolutely to the, the, to the, to the uh, things that that person's saying. Uh, but then, then we're, we're in Beijing then, right? <laughs> uh, suddenly we're in China. Um, and do we want a scenario where actually, uh, yes, everything I say is absolutely connected to, to who I am. Uh, and there's all sorts of implications there, which maybe we don't find welcome either. So yeah, it's imperfect. Um, and I don't profess to have the answers. Um, but I think that the first thing we have to do is to control uh, our own behavior as best we can uh, and to make sure that uh, you know, we do the right thing. A good example actually was, and by the way, I'm, a, I'm, I'm introducing an example I'm guilty of, but uh, I, I raised this simply because it happened uh, in the last 24 hours. But a friend of mine shared something online, which was definitely fake news. Um, uh, now, because he came, it was quite a, a strong political opinion. It was definitely there to damage a certain political party, etc. cetera. Um, and and um, that's probably, probably he strongly believes that this party is a negative thing. So he was happy to then share it without any due diligence on his side. Um, and he was actually called out on it um, quite publicly by several people online um, who, who, who addressed his sharing of the fake news. Now, I saw that as progress. <laughs> I saw that as progress because I would hope that this fellow probably would be a little bit more careful about sharing stuff next time. Um, and also the fact that other people looked at it and immediately saw, you know what, that's a little bit suspicious. Um, and then we're able to counter argue, uh, with, uh, with information say, look, this image happened from five years ago. It's actually been doctored in this way. You shouldn't be sending that. Ah, da, da, da. We're starting to learn how to deal with the bakery, um, with, with, with better behavior. So I think we're, we're getting there. Uh, we've just been slapped a little bit over the last three, four years or so being manipulated. Uh, no question, um, but I think we're getting wiser to the fact, and and I do have hope uh, that it's uh, uh, that it's on us, the people, that that are going to turn this around. It's not going to be on big tech. Definitely, it's not going to be come from government regulation. Oh, I love all this though. The, you know, this this really human. You know, it is us that created the machines, as you said, Hung. You know, it is us that use the machines, and I just love that that message because you know, tech speeding up. Yeah, you know, I look at my organisations implementing Salesforce right now. Um, you know, it's just getting faster and faster. Yeah, I really see that to be more distinctly human, you know, more vulnerable, more aware, you know, more empathetic. I truly see those as like the skills of the future. Is that something you share or challenge from your side? I do share it 100%. I'm very much aligned with Jack Maher on this, um, you know, where he gave very famous, uh, it wasn't even a speech, I think it was an excerpt of a, of, a, of, a, of a conversation he was recorded doing, but he said, you know what, we should absolutely, we should accept that the computers are going to outcompute us. <laughs> you know, they're just going to do it better. So, so, so what, what we need to do and really focus on is developing the skills that computers can never do. Um, and this is the empathy. This is about um, uh, the kind of um, uh, EQ plus IQ um, uh, combo. Um, this is the idea of, 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 of having this nuanced thinking that isn't an absolute, you know, dealing with the messiness, uh, which computers can't really do. They want to compute and absolutely get an equation at the end of it with a result. Um, you know, let the computers do that. Um, we've got to be uh, building those. Uh, uh, working on the skills and working on the work uh, that really keeps us human. The question is, how does that then affect the political economy? 
um, because the political economy we currently have or have, uh, have had for the last couple of hundred years has always been about productivity. Uh, productivity meaning um, uh, you know, how much hours in compared to value out. Value meaning the monetization, right? Monetary value. Now, we might be getting to a point where actually machine can definitely outwork us and produce hell of a lot more productivity than any human being. Okay, well, that's very, very interesting. So what, what does that mean for us as human beings? Um, and how can we construct a society that isn't built around productivity, right? It isn't built around that metric. Um, it's built instead around, you know, how do we get um, all of the talents uh, uh, to, 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 to their optimal capacity. You know, I think if everyone can do um, uh, what they're meant to do in, at the optimal level, that's probably where we need to be. Hopefully, you know, we'll find a way in which we could uh, uh, cater for our basic needs as well as our social needs. Um, you know, another thing I've learned from anthropology, actually, is that a lot of the things that drive human behavior is actually status competition. Um, uh, it's not necessarily about... Um, accumulating material resources because resources are a, a method of communicating status um, now what happens when actually all of those resources are freely available for everyone um, how then do we uh, create a society where states competition can ensue um, in a controlled manner um, or uh, do we accept that maybe we need to get rid of the idea of competing on status and you know uh, find another way to to, to uh, uh, procreate, I guess. <laughs> At the end of the day, it comes down to that. Uh, there's some really deep animalistic drivers because uh, we are part of the animal kingdom. One of the major flaws of psychology, in my mind, as a discipline, um, and indeed all of those social sciences in many respects, economics and so forth, um, is that it, it kind of uh, has it's been built on a fallacy that we are not part of the natural world. Um, and we are absolutely part of the natural world. There's no distinction between man or beast. Um, and there's no, we are uh, kind of just operating some evolutionary impulses, even though we ra might rationalize it away in a different manner. Um, so, you know, we need to kind of understand that and then figure out how can we continue to um, uh, evolve and progress society in such a way that is, you know, um, least destructive to the most amount of people. Mm, it's, it's really powerful there's a few things going through my mind actually as you as, as you talk so there's one is around this there's a lot more noise and i think it's good noise hung around the, the evaluation of universal basic income as a way yes. of actually how do we allow everyone to actually do the work they love and that drives them they're passionate about and get away mm -hmm. from this rewarding excuse me any lawyers out there or bankers but you know we reward <laughs> those roles that don't actually necessarily give the most to society and those that are nurses or doctors or you know, firemen or firewomen tend to get paid much less. So I yes. think there's something in that, that model, I think, structurally, that could be yeah. a solution. I don't know if that's something that, 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 that you sort of see as well. Yeah, UBI, I think, is definitely worth the experiment. Um, and I know some people might gonna, are going to say, look, the Finland did a limited experiment and they abandoned it and so on. But the idea of UBI is that you don't abandon it. <laughs> it, it, it can't ever be an experiment with a time frame. You simply got to commit. Um, <clears throat> so... I think it's perfectly possible to do. We do produce enough resources for it to happen. <clears throat> I think the main critics of UBI are the ones that think, oh, but that doesn't, does not lead to people you know, failing to do any work. Why would anybody do any work um, if you were simply you know, provisioned um, with, with, with an income? Um, but I think we need to experiment with that. You know, I think most people would do something 
um, because indolence is not particularly happy circumstance. I don't think that's where joy comes from. Um, you know, the, the happiest people I see aren't, aren't like sitting on a sofa. In fact, the people that sit on the sofa are some of the most depressed people I know. Uh, and that includes rich people, right? So, so indolence, I think that the lack of purpose um, is, 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 is actually one of the, uh, uh, the forcing factors towards people going towards a depressive state. So I don't think that's a risk, really. I think it's a little bit of a, a, little bit of a, 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 a fake fear, really. Um, I'd love to see UBI really rolled out in, 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 a, in a committed way um, and then see uh, how, how it might work out. But thankfully, it's coming into the mainstream. Like, this would have been, even three years ago, a completely far-out idea uh, to say, look, why don't we just give everyone a, a stipend every month to make sure that they can survive? That would be completely nuts. Now we're seeing um, politicians talk about it. Um, we've got a guy <clears throat> called Andrew Yang, uh, who uh, a friend of mine interviewed on a, on a podcast. He's, he's going to be a Democratic candidate for 2022 in the U.S. Uh, for the U.S. presidential election, uh, and UBI is one of his platforms. Um, so I think it's it's an obvious vote winner as well, right? So you can see that um, a lot of people might embrace this, particularly as economic insecurity in the uh, 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 for, for many parts of the population is becoming more pronounced with tech unemployment um, uh, uh, sort of chipping away at the value that humans can pr potentially provide to the economy. So I think it's going to very quickly become a mainstream idea and then let's see what happens. Um, I'd be happy to be part of that experiment actually. Um, so, um, so yeah, let, let, let's bring it on. I think it's something that um, is a, a worth, a worth the experiment for sure. Yeah, no, it's, it's certainly something that resonates with me. I had a chat with um, Scott Santons um, quite quite recently around this topic. And yeah, it just it just makes so much sense. It really makes so much sense. Um, I want to get onto your product a little bit, if I may, around yep. uh, uh, workspace. So I love the concept, love the idea. I've got a look at the website. I've sort of seen some of your work on it. What was the, where did that come from? What was the sort of, what was the seed that was planted in you or by someone else that really made you drive towards that? You know what, it, it, it's going to come back to the fact that the, the world was too noisy again. So uh, there's probably a general theme that I probably should be a hermit somewhere on, a, on, on, an, on an island. Um, but yeah, I was, I was speaking to a friend of mine um, and, and we realized that, okay, so Workshape is all about helping employers connect with software engineers. Um, uh, this population of people that's in massively high demand, uh, but they're so difficult to talk to. Um, and, and we sort of uh, kind of thought you know, why are these people so hard to engage with? And, and it turned out not because they were, didn't care about job discovery, because, um, you know, like any human being, they cared about opportunities that might progress their careers or might progress them, their skills or so forth. It was simply that they were so overwhelmed by the, the amount of recruitment messaging they were getting because the demand was so high that they literally had to just white noise everything, um, even at the extent of missing out from opportunities that would, they would otherwise embrace. Um, and we just thought to ourselves, you know what, if it's such a noisy environment for this population, is it possible for us to create a platform where we could remove that noise? Um, could we create a place where all of the, the noise is gone and only signal goes through uh, to these people um, who are actually interested in opportunity? Uh, and that's the, where the concept of, of WorkShape came out. There's actually kind of two innovations in there. Number one is the, the, the idea of making it quiet, uh, which we do by eliminate, eliminating search. So very simply, 
if you provide a searchable database, that equals noise uh, and that equals disengagement. Simple as that. Um, so you have to protect the community. Again, we're talking about barriers here. You have to protect the community by cr putting friction in there, uh, friction on entry, uh, and friction in terms of this, uh, in terms of messaging. You can't message the database. Um, you can only message people that you've been matched to. Um, and the way in which we do the matching is where we, we put the visualization in because we realized uh, another problem in recruiting um, is that the artifacts that we use to uh, consider fit uh, are all text-based documents in some way. Um, they're CVs, they're online profiles, they're, they're words, basically. Um, now, words are super problematic, Gary, um, because they're hard to write. Um, and write in a way that your meaning is, 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 is accurately communicated. Um, and they're, they're hard to read. Because uh, remember, we're in a distracted economy. We're not spending time reading anymore. Um, I read a, a post, um, in fact, I'm so, a couple of posts. So the amount of time some, a recruiter spends looking at a CV is anywhere between three and seven seconds, depending on what, what study that you, you read. Um, uh, that or you probably scan in three seconds, right? But it occurred to us that this recruiter is not reading really, they're scanning and they're looking for patterns real quick and then making a yes no decision based on that scan. And they do it because it's a more efficient way of doing it than reading line by line. If you imagine you had a recruiter and you forced that person to read line by line, he or she would be the slowest, most inefficient recruiter ever, they'd get fired. Um, so yes, we have forced this person to scan, read this, let's go quickly. Let's, let's use your intuition, whatever. Let's go get to the person you want to speak to. And then we realize, you know what, a busy person on the other side, uh, a candidate that isn't an active job seeker. Now, how long is that person spending reading job ads or job copy? Uh, I don't think any more than three, seven seconds. Do you Gary? <laughs> um, if that. They're also making scanning decisions. Uh, so decisions really before you do any kind of information processing. So then they occurred to us, you know what, what we're trying to do here, we're trying to basically, um, uh, uh, we're trying to basically, we're asking people to do things we know they don't do. You know, read this job ad, read this email, read this CV. No one's doing any of that. Um, what if we could actually uh, get rid of the words? You know, what if people aren't reading words, let's not use them. Um, uh, if people are making decisions based on three seconds or less, that's our window to communicate fit. Um, how do we communicate fit in three seconds or less? Um, and the idea of Workshape came about because we realized, you know what? Why don't we just kind of ask people what it is that they're most passionate about based on a, 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 a diagram they can model. They could chart the Workshape in, in this visual way. You know, I want to do less of this, more of that. They could do that in a drag and drop interface and get through the to get through that process in 60 seconds or less. Um, they then produce this work shape. The employer does the same. So we're not asking them to write a job ad. We're saying, look, what do you need this person to do? Less, less of that, more of this. And then again, they can draw a shape. And then we use the shape um, to algorithmically match the two together. Um, and when we do the match, we do some very simple Gary. We simply overlay the two shapes um, and create a unified image. Um, and then we communicate that unified shape to both sides to say, look, you've been matched, go have a chat. Um, and by having the overlay in this combined image, you can see where the alignment is or isn't and where you need to talk about. Um, and, and that's something that people can get in three seconds or less. 
it's so so powerful I, I'm, I'm just really intrigued because i looked at your website over the last sort of few days I've, i know you're targeting software you know developers software engineers yeah yeah parallels for the whole recruitment market hung huge you know, no doubt no doubt um we're we're in a vertical um and there's no question this could be applied to many other verticals and in fact that's something we're very open to try and do um so you know if anybody's listening here right now um i, I we're definitely looking for partners in different industries and, and different segments um <laughs> that may want to use this idea and push it forward um because one of the things we've recognized is that um, to do a matching product, typically you can't do it universally. Um, you can't do it across the entire uh, universe of people for practical reasons rather than technical reasons. Uh, it's simply going to require too much engineering to do. Um, but what we've been able to do is to do it within one segment, but why can't it be ported to others? Um, but that's where you know, I'd love to uh, have a conversation with someone who does have a data set um, of graduates, let's say, or has a data set of, uh, uh, of, of, of mechanics or nurses or something or whatever it is. Um, and we could apply the concept um, to what is probably moribund text-based data right now and actually transform that into something that actually is a product that can do matching, um, but also uh, is a product that uh, can really transform the experience of job discovery uh, for candidates. Yeah, no, it's like I say, it resonates a lot. And I'll, I'll actually link you to someone shortly. I was having a conversation literally yesterday around these very topics, because where I see it not only transferring to other sectors and other verticals, there's such a push, myself included, many people in my network who are looking for more purpose, more meaning, more impact, more whatever else you want to call it, but so far away from the traditional job spec. The job spec is dead, is dead for me, Hung, completely dead. And it's like... You know, what you're doing, I think, is next gen and it's totally what the world needs and not just tech. Really. I really mean that. Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that, Gary. Um, and I agree with you. The job spec is, is such a hard document to write um, and we've all tried to write them. Um, and and it, it's, it's not data that we can trust anymore. The problem is, um, is that the written writing is hard, Gary. You know, this is why we have professional writers. We have journalists, copywriters and so on. Um, and yet we're assuming that hiring managers know how to write, um, or we, we're assuming that recruiters know how to write. We don't, um, which is why we copy-paste. Um, you know, copy-paste, replace all. You know what? Those two functions, if you, if you remove them from the universe, I wonder how many job, job descriptions would actually still exist. Um, we'd probably eliminate 99% of them um, because most of them are copy-paste. Um, and, and again, a, a big thing for us is that we realize, you know what, what that means is, is that we're just putting bad information into a system, uh, that isn't accurate. Um, and suddenly we're expecting good outcomes from bad information in, um, you know, any engineer would tell you that's not going to happen. Mm. Fascinating. What, what I really like to do, I'm conscious of time. Okay, I talked to you all day hung, but I know you've got a day job to do or two. So <laughs> one of the fascinating things, which links back to, to your product, but I really want to touch on this for, for the listener. You've done a wonderful comparison of traditional corporate job, job specification versus what software engineers and technical sort of specialists yes. are looking for. This permanent versus project, on-site versus remote. Yes. How, how helpful has that been in sort of developing your business? Has that been a really pivotal part of that, sort of having that language and that? that clarity almost for, for what you're focusing on? Honestly, no, Gary. Um, and and the, the, re the reason why is because the defaults on those two parties are actually um, 
in, oppos in opposition. Um, so the default is always permanent on-site full-time. Um, when we do recruit or when someone's putting a hiring club plan together, which a lot of your listeners are probably doing now, they're planning for 2019, I assure you, they're defaulting to oh, who are our permanent hires, um, you know, uh, who are the full-time permanent people we need in our business. And they're building their recruitment strategies around that. Um, and anybody who doesn't fall into, you know, this, uh, this schema is, 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 is not afforded the same degree of, of thought and care. Uh, they're, they're considered to be fill-ins or, you know, uh, last-ditch type uh, parachuted-in contractors or whatever it might be. Um, but then you speak to the in-demand labor force. Um, and again, we need to be careful because the, the labor force in itself is not a unified group of people. There's different populations that have different needs and different skills and different um, kind of uh, optimal outcomes. But it, looking at the software engineers as, as, a, as, as, a, as a population, these are people that are highly skilled in demand. Uh, and in fact, their default is the opposite uh, of what the employers want. Uh, they want flexi time. Uh, they want actually to know, you know what does permanent work mean? Does it mean I have to give up my side projects? Does it mean I can't work with anybody else? Big questions, right? Um, on site, does that mean I have to turn up every day? You know, what does this mean? Why? So all of the defaults, I mean, what was interesting on Workshape for us is that all, basically all the developers choose the agnostic choice. They say either or, I want to see all the options, um, but I'm definitely not committing to full-time permanent on site straight away. I want to see what other options are out there. Um, and is, does this company provide me with the flexibility to at least learn something a bit more about them before I make this life-changing decision? Um, and actually, Gary, I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with this. Um, basically, a lot of the problems in recruiting tech people um, is because it's not about employer branding per se, although we could improve on that. Um, it's not about outreach per se in terms of the message structure, although, yes, we can improve on that. Um, it is the fact that we're asking for something that's so hard to say yes to. We're saying, come and work with us permanent, full-time, on-site. That's life-changing, Gary. If you ask me that question, you decide to hire me and say, Hong, I really like your chat. I want you to work with me full-time, permanent, on-site. That's a life-changing decision. Do I, do I need to speak to my partner about that? Uh, do I need to uh, think about my commute? Uh, do I need to speak to my mortgage broker? Do, you know, what? Lots of things. This is, this is huge. Way too, and chances are, I'm going to say no. No, no offense to you, Gary. If that, <laughs> you but I'll just say no very quickly using three seconds, right? Because I'm thinking, you know what? I, I'm reasonably happy where I am now. I don't need to get involved in this circumstance where potentially it's life-changing because I think my life is pretty, pretty okay at this point. Um, and so we're asking for too much too soon. Whereas I think the better way to communicate with the, the hard to hire, the in-demand hard to hire, is to have an incremental approach to it. Um, think about some, something small that you could both be interested in that could help you build a little bit of trust, build a little social capital, and actually get to know each other a little bit better before you take the next step. Um, and again, I'll throw in yet another idea, and I appreciate your time, Gary. You've got to kick me offline anytime soon. But... Engineers live in the agile world of working, right? Um, agile is basically one of the fundamental principles of agile is that you do small packets of work to see whether it's worth continuing to do it, right? It's not committing to everything straight away, whereas recruiting is waterfall. We go out, 
don't we go and we go and spec spec it out don't we We go and capture requirements we write it out then we launch a plan uh, and then we want people to immediately come and join us full-time permanent on site that's a huge commitment uh, it's a waterfall approach of recruiting and it's a clash of philosophies um there's very few engineers now that would commit to waterfall over agile uh, even though agile of course has you know got all of its associated problems uh, but in fact recruiters and employers generally very few of them genuinely work in an agile way even though they may have you know the accoutrements of agile i'm sure they have a kanban board somewhere or they do daily stand-ups and do all of that stuff but you know what they're still asking for something that is like an enterprise sale you know it's like if i if i hired someone full-time permit on site it's like me buying oracle and committing to 10 years worth of contract support like who in their right mind does that anymore? You know, I want freemium. I want a free trial for a month and I need a monthly subscription service that I can turn off anytime I want. And then if I really like it, then maybe I do an annual subscription or maybe a two or three year contract after I'm really sure. Um, have a think about how we uh, do recruiting right now. We're asking people to make huge decisions way too early, way too soon. And a lot of these people, particularly if they're technical, that they, they, they instinctively reject this because they they don't build software like this anymore. That's, you know something. That's a wonderful way to wrap up those that, that the parallel of those two philosophies. I've never seen traditional corporate life, let's call it, as the waterfall method versus agile till now. That's a really interesting parallel. So thank you for that. Really, really interesting. How can people reach out to you, Hung, if they want to follow up the conversation or or, or get in contact? Yeah, so um, basically get hold of me on Twitter. I'm, I'm at, at Hung Lee, uh, so follow me on there. If, if Twitter's not your thing, that's totally fine. Um, uh, you probably best follow me on, on, on the newsletter, uh, Hung at recruitingbrainfood.com. I send that once a week, um, and I do communicate on that as well. If people want to get in touch, that's not a bad place to do it. I would say LinkedIn, but I'm kind of hitting my 30K limit now, so um, I don't think I'll be able to accept too many more um uh, people on there so so those two areas are probably the best way that's great well i'll add these to the show notes anyway and look you've been an absolute joy hung appreciate your time today have a great day gary my pleasure take care cheers bye-bye hi there just gary turner wrapping up this sensational podcast i really do have to use that word I've really thanked Hung for this uh, engaging conversation. A few of my wrap-up points that I wanted to share with the listeners were a really interesting one for me was he quoted that one of the major flaws of psychology and indeed all social sciences is the fallacy that we are not all part of the natural world. This really points to some extent for me to the three principles, which I know a number of the, the listeners and some of my network um, may also spot. So and it also points towards uh, a lot of the work like what Jenny Anderson is doing around um, regener regeneration and regenerative um, ways of living and working because we definitely have developed, uh, and it's only recently that I've become more conscious as to the fact that, uh, that we are all connected. We are all connected, but every part of the living species are connected. And I thought that's such a powerful comment from Hung, really, really resonated with me. I found it also interesting when he was speaking about there's a clash of philosophy in recruitment, whereas most recruitment is still very much based on the agile methodology um, versus what he's doing with his workshape organization, which is very much around waterfall, is genuinely agile and is matching up people um, based on what they want to do for work with organizations um, that are looking for a similar thing, completely cutting out the middleman, which is really, really interesting and a very, very big wake up call for the recruitment agents. Um, of this world. 
I found it also interesting when he was talking about that the default is still very much permanent on site and full time. There's so much discussion around flexible working and currently, whether it be HR space or outside of that. And organizations, I know many organizations that are terrified of actually implementing genuine flexible working. Yet what Hung is pointing to specifically with and, and you know, very intentionally around um, software engineers, you know, they just won't work at an organization that is permanent on site and, and, um, and full time because it involves, you know, habit changes. It involves potentially having to have a, a deep conversation with your other half, um, you know, proper life changing conversation, as you mentioned, which I thought was a really, really interesting reflection and not something that I was particularly cognizant, cognizant to before this, this discussion. And finally, a point I want to leave with you is a real, a really, another really big takeaway for me. You know, I very much believe that culture is a positive, you know, make sure people are aligned. You can align your own values with the organization values. You know, that's a great way of maybe, maybe building your tribe, et cetera. And while I'm not necessarily that's right or wrong, but what is an interesting reflection was when Hung spoke about culture evolves as a defense mechanism. Um, so I was just thought like, wow, you know, it really got me thinking and pondering. Yeah, so we're all talking about how can we create the right culture, how do we make people that, that they align with us. But if we think about it, it is an exclusionary tactic. You know, we want the right culture, we want the right people that fit our values, the right people that are going to fit in with our people. So ultimately, it is an exclusive practice uh, to some extent. So yeah, just I took so, so much away from this, as you probably heard as I, as I was going along with Hung, but a really great guy. Do, do reach out to him. Do subscribe to his incredible um, recruiting brain food that is such a good... Um, curation that he does there and let's all create some space let's all just stop let's get a bit more present and actually as, as he's as his inspiration has been for his business and his life yeah let's just try and reduce the noise just a little bit uh, in the meantime take care i hope you find this interesting if you've enjoyed the podcast really appreciate you rating it uh, five stars ideally um on the itunes podcast app and uh, in the meantime see you on the next podcast thanks very much and my name again is gary turner Thank you.